Welcome back to 10 and 20, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Sarah. My name's Brad. First off, we really want to say thank you to all of our regular listeners, especially to those who have subscribed and reviewed us on iTunes. We still have a few t-shirts left, so if you haven't picked up one for yourself, head to store.boft.org to check those out. And this week, we're discussing the post-Civil War history of Carnton, how the house went from a private residence to a historic site. Joining us this week are our co-workers, James and Beth. This episode will run a little bit longer than our standard 20-ish minutes, but we think you'll still find it pretty entertaining. Beth, if you wouldn't mind starting, just... What is your history of, of working for Carnton? Well, this is my third time here, so I'm hoping third time's charm. Um, I started as a student when I was in college at UT, and I worked on the weekends, on Saturdays and Sundays, and it was in 1984. That was even before you were here. It was. How many visitors were you getting every day? Weekend? Mm-hmm. Maybe 10. <laughs> Both days. Wow. <laughs> It was really, really slow. I loved it. It was um, just this big, empty house in the middle of a field. I thought it was beautiful. I think in some ways it was funner back then with no furniture in the house. So you could kind of use your imagination as to where things would have been and how the house would have been used and who would have come up the driveway. So I loved that. So your first time was in 1984 for how long? Um, The summer. So... June, July, August, and I think I went back to school probably okay. the end of August, first of September. And then your second, your second wave working here was when? Was it in nineteen ninety something? That's what <laughs> I have to think. No, you're allowed to think. <laughs> okay. um, you can just say the nineteen nineties. It was in the nineteen nineties. Okay, and then the most recent time started when? Two thousand twelve. Two thousand twelve. Came back home from Maryland when I moved back home okay. to help take care of my parents. So you've seen the house through through different waves and through different yes. people working here and different leadership and all that. And I came back because I called him and said, "Are there any jobs at Franklin?" He said, "No, not right now, but I think one's getting ready to come up." <laughs> and I said, "Okay, we'll tell him that I'm here. I'm back home." And I came down and interviewed with Eric, and I just started working one day a week, and then I worked. Two, three, four, five, pretty quickly. And then I uh, moved into curatorial again, which was my real love. So first time I was here, I was a tour guide. Second time I was here, I was curator. Third time I was here, and now I was collections manager. And do you give tours at all now? I do. Okay. One day a week, and I love it. You're glad you still give tours at I least do. once a week. And Sarah brings me into um, the kids' programs, yes, which I really do. love. Well, you're so great with kids. I love them very much. And James, how about you? When was when did you start working here? I started 1990 or 91 on the weekends. And you've been here ever since? And for a little while, I was not here and then came back and uh, have been here pretty much full time. What did you start off doing when you first began here? Oh, helping with tours. And again, as with Beth, there weren't many people on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Sat so, around waiting for people to show I think we should just estimate how many tours James has given <laughs> over the course of being here. He is the most famous tourist. Uh, <laughs> that would I just had this thought. So, okay. <laughs> well, we'll say that you worked here for 
20? Maybe 25 years? Six times a week times 52 weeks a year times 25 years. So you get roughly 7,800 tours oh over the course of being here, James. Whether that's accurate or not, I, I believe it's at least, I would say it's the low, the low estimate. Yeah. And nobody can ever complain again about having to do four tours a day. Uh, no. <laughs> we did that. Yeah, sometimes. we did. Yeah, we did. Well, so that was that's your time as an employee here, but for each of you, when was the first time you ever visited? Do you remember? Mine was literally the day that Bernice called me to come and interview to do the weekend tour guide job. Um, so I'd never seen Carnton. I grew up here in Nashville, never even knew it was here. And so when I walked up this back driveway through the pecan trees and onto the porch, I just thought, oh my goodness, this place is falling down. What are we going to do with it? And then she told me the story. So you didn't know anything about it until you showed up to potentially work here. I knew about the Carter House, Bellmead, Belmont, all the historic houses, the Hermitage, of course, but not not Carnton. Mm-mm. And how about you, James? Do you remember how old you were when you first visited? Well, I'd been to the cemetery, of course, and had seen the house in the distance. But I think the first time I was up close to the house, I was 10 or so, mid-60s, and my grandmother brought me over here. We didn't go in, but we drove right up to the house and got a good close look at it. And and it looked a bit dilapidated and there were farming implements in the yard. Between the two of you, you have about as much insider information as could be, <laughs> as could be possibly be had. Probably. You living right down the street, you know, have heard and seen so much more than me, but it looked pretty awful. And the early pictures that we have in the collection of um, the spring house and the smoke house and uh, the old awful pitiful looking, I don't even know what it was, a lean-to that we walked through to get into the house, um, that's what it looked like. It was in really bad shape. Um, the porches especially. Oh, gosh, they were really bad. They were really bad. So let's go back to... <clears throat> Before your before your time working here, mm-hmm. when did the house leave the McGavick family? Let's say that. And why? Well, it was sold in 1910. And Wanda McGavick had died. And living here still, his widow and five children. But they, before long, moved into town. And then it was sold several years later to Judge William Shelton, who lived here. And... A couple of other owners lived here, and then it was rental property for decades. Mm-hmm. Now, we always hear stories that people from town say who come pick, take the tours about the house lying empty, about how it being used as a hay barn. Mm-hmm. Is there any truth to that? I think so. I've heard that, too. Yeah, I think so. I've heard the doors were open and cattle walked through from the front to the back. Do you think that portion's true? Yeah. Okay. Wow. But that wouldn't have been until a little bit later because after it was sold to the family, Mm -hmm. people lived in the house for how many many decades, would you say? Three, maybe. Up through the 40s. Well, someone lived Mm -hmm. here until 1980. There was actually somebody living in the house in 1980. And who was the The last person? The Carton Association had a resident director, Mm -hmm. and he lived here a couple of years. But when would you say the house was, I don't want to say abandoned, but when when did it go from becoming a residence to becoming more of a a farm storage area? Probably in the 60s, you think? So about 100 years it was continually lived in, more or less? You know. People were living here, I think, when the Carnton Association got property. They did. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe it was between tenants that... It fell that, into disrepair. And, yeah. And how did the Carnton Association get the property again? It was donated by 
the owners who lived in Florida, who'd had the property since 1955, uh, Dr. and Mrs. W.D. Sugg. We have Dr. Sugg's portrait in the uh, yes. gallery at Carnton here. And he had two, mut- he had a maternal and paternal relative who fought in the Civil War. And he has a deep association with Franklin, even though I don't think he lived here particularly a long time personally. Um, and she loved kind of that Gone with the Wind era house. And so he basically bought it for her. And I think they wanted to retire here. I think they did. But did not. Um, so they had it as a tenant farm for many years. And then I assume the ladies and Dr. Willoughby approached them and somehow they struck a deal for those 10 acres in the house. When you say tenant farm, so you're saying that the person who owned the house owned the farmland it was on. And so they were allowing somebody to live in the house in exchange for farming some of the land? Yes. I think so. Mm-hmm. Okay. What was the local mentality of what this house was or what it, I guess what it meant? Because now we have an idea of the significance the house played in the battle, but did people think of it like that back then? I think people really knew Carton as the place where the bodies of five Confederate generals were placed on the porch. Not so much as a hospital or really for its earlier history, but for the aftermath of the battle. And, and they really... Mm-hmm. They knew about the dead generals, but yeah. not so much about and the cemetery of filled course. with injured. Yep. And for the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And why do you think that was? Like, was it just because the story hadn't been told yet, or do you think people cared back then? I guess the story hadn't been told. Yeah. When I first started on tour rotation in the early '80s with Bernice, the main focus was Randall McGavick and his association with Tennessee politics. And the connection with early Tennessee history and, and how were, this area was developed. And there were plans to restore the house to its earlier period. Yes. And my husband even said that um, as a student at MTSU and the Historic Preservation Program that they were going to tear off the back porch because it didn't uh, equate to Randall's time period. You and told me that before. That I is just, crazy. I know, just can't even believe the, it. When you say the back porch, you mean the big iconic porch yes, on the house. The north side. They were thinking about ripping it off. Yes. Where the generals laid. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Because it was not Randall's time period. What changed their mind? Money. Money. Okay. And God. Yeah. And God, and God or thank God? <laughs> and God. <laughs> Both. Both. But yeah, money. Talk to us, like Sarah was asking earlier, about the formation of the Carnton Association and how the house was originally saved. How did that come about? James is pointing at Beth. <laughs> Let the records show that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, in terms of um, the house being saved, I think it was saved really principally as a historic site, a national historic landmark. Um, and so that association was in conjunction with the Battlefield of Franklin. The outbuildings were support structures like the smokehouse and the spring house. How did, how did this like local group form wanting to save the site? Like what was, uh, was it just, Oh, we think it should be done. Was the house in danger of being torn down? What was their motive in doing it? I, I believe they were afraid that. it would yeah. be torn down. Miss Bowman was really leading the charge that way, that there would be this encroachment from developments. It was when I was in high school and you were of course older because I'm much younger than you. And, um, in that Let's time period. also show that. <laughs> In that time period, in the late 70s, early 80s, development here in Williamson County was booming. And it was a time when, yes, all these housing developments in Circleus now were being laid out and planned. Oh, I know I, she wrote that the house saved being torn down just by a hair's breadth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So did they raise money for the home? Did Dr. Suggs ultimately donate the home to this association? What went on there? He did donate it in 10 acres. The house in 10 acres. And then they sold the surrounding acres. Which is a lot. Which was a lot. That's basically all the land going from Lewisburg Pike almost all the way up to the house. Because the 10 acres is really just the grounds that the house, the outbuildings, and what was the garden sit on. Yes. And then the state came in and saved some acres. Close to 30. Is it 28 acres the state owns? Well, the Suggs offered the association a tract of 38 acres. And the Cornton Association purchased that and later was able to sell it to the state. Money was recouped that could be put into restoration. So it's it's sad and it's a mixed blessing because we had it and then we had to sell it for the restoration funds. But it's also protected and it was never built on and it's where, you know, right up to Polk Place, basically. That year was 1978 that the house was saved? Yes. Okay, and when did, when did tours first start? I would assume right away. Right away. Yeah. Like yeah. on occasion, the house was open. Because mm-hmm. we have a guest book in the house, don't mm-hmm. we? With my signature. From what year? Oh my gosh, 1984, the day I came. The day you first yeah. came to interview to yep. start your signatures yep. in that guest book? Mm-hmm. So that was the first few, well, I guess like the first six or seven years of it being open? Yes. And that was so pitiful. It's downstairs, actually, on the table in Karma office. Yeah. I remember when you showed me that. Yeah. I had no idea what that was. And then you told me that that's the guest know, log. It's hilarious. Like, it's an old 19th century uh, log book that probably somebody donated to the house just to look good, you know, as an old uh, artifact, appropriate looking on the outside. And then on the inside, they used it to record the visitors and where they came from. Yeah, there were blank pages. Yeah. So they put them to use. And it was um, on a table for me right when you came in the back door. And you were supposed to sign in. And then part of the dining room was where the office had been reconfigured. And uh, we had a little cash box in there. <laughs> I don't remember how much tours were. It was probably like $5. What do you think? Maybe. So we had Maybe to make- not quite that much. <laughs> <laughs> we had to make change, which was terrifying, of course. And um, I don't even think we had a brochure. We just um, took the money and visited with the people uh, we had a basic outline of stuff to, to tell. When you drove up that first day or in your first mm-hmm. time working there, describe what the house looked like as you as you pulled up. Oh, gosh. We came down Carnton Lane, which is how we went for many, many years. So that was neat because the trees. And um, you came through uh, just like we did before we built the visitor center and uh, came onto the awful gravel driveway. But it was a little bit smaller rock back then than the horrible lava rock they put in years later that dinged up all our cars. But you came down this kind of, I guess, southwest corridor, and you came up, and as you drove, it was like pig pen from the old peanuts. Yes, it was just awful from that cartoon. And it was like clouds of smoke would follow you (laughs) as you came up, and because it was kind of half mud and a little bit of pea gravel. You came up to the front, and then you pulled around in between where the garden is now because it wasn't there. Across the garden. Yeah, and you came to the back, which was the north side, and there was like a little driveway out there and a sidewalk. And you came in through this north side through the big double gallery where we still enter the house Mm -hmm. today with tours. And then when you opened the door, because she had the front door open, so much light, you know, came in because there was no HVAC system at oh. all. So every window, every door from the attic down to the first floor was wide open. 
and it was hotter than the hinges of you know what. <laughs> it was really bad. But a good breeze. But a great breeze. Mm-hmm. A great breeze. What's the story you would tell people back then when you when you did have visitors? What was the what was the tour? The core tour really was about Randall and about how he was really good friends with Jackson and about how their wives exchanged plant slips and their gardens were exactly the same and many wives' tales or things that you hoped would be true, you know, and for a new site, it was what they thought was true, but it was um, a very I hate to say it because I am one, but it, it, it was a very little old lady tour <laughs> of um, a historic house. And so you see those a lot when you still travel to really rural areas and you go to historic house sites. They're not very structured. They're um, pretty. And they're dreaming about what was, hmm. which never existed in many times. But yep. pleasant and everybody smiles and it's all good. And that was it, I think. We talked a little bit about the bloodstains, uh, but we really um, we really passed over that. It was really totally about Randall back in the day. That's what I remember in the 80s. That's so interesting because the tour as it exists now is so, it's defined by the battle story. Mm-hmm. You know, it's building up towards mm-hmm. the battle story. It's talking about the aftermath, but it's, mm-hmm. in, it's interesting. I wonder how long it took or, or what, what changed people's minds. You, you, you mentioned money, but like, was it just... Was it just they realized that it was a, it was maybe a more compelling story, or, or what changed it to be that's the focus for us today in 2019? Well, I mean, like what was the progression of changing from Randall being the core to the Battle of Franklin, the hospital being the core? And maybe that's where you could jump in as well, James. By the time I came, there was more emphasis on the battle. So early 90s, yes, <laughs> and the bloodstains. Okay, so within mm-hmm. and the story of the general. So within like ten years, five, yeah, okay. ten years, I think so. Because I was back around ninety four, uh, ninety five, somewhere around there, and um, it was on the generals. It was on the battle. It was on the cemetery. I think maybe the cemetery might have been the catalyst mm-hmm. to tie that with the house. That was purposeful. It was meaningful, and it made sense to do that. So at one point, the house mm-hmm. and the cemetery. Mm-hmm. Seemed like they were completely separate historic sites. Almost. Because we didn't own, just like we don't today, the cemetery. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't ours to interpret, but it was obviously, it's theirs. Right. So you have to. So the thought it. was since it's not ours to interpret, then it's not, it shouldn't be part of the story that's told. Whereas now we're thinking, but it's so tied to the family story. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't know really what the directors were thinking at that time. Um, I think they just wanted to make money so that they could get tourists in here to save the house. And then they were constantly, you know, like from their papers that we catalog and and, um, preserve in the archives now, when you read back through their minutes, you see that, you know, the roof is leaking and that uh, the porch is falling off and that the lath needs mending and so forth. And so they were just really trying to do the best they could with what they had while researching. And so it's easy, like for us and this generation to be a little judgmental of them and say, oh, well, you could have done better. You could have done this. You could have done that. But they were the janitor. They were the tour guide. They were the director. They were the fundraiser, you know. The, when they saved the house. They yeah. saved the house. And how yeah. many employees did Carnton have, the Carnton Station, have when it first began? Few. Very, <laughs> Very few. Very few. Many volunteers. Mostly volunteers. Mm-hmm. And um, I found my pay stub. I could look it up and see how much it was. I found it when we were... <laughs> <laughs> going through some of Tracy's old papers, and I put it on 
Eric's desk and said, I think I deserve a raise. (laughs) (laughs) But it was, it was pretty pitiful, but they had to do something to make, um, to make it viable. And so what about you, James, when you first started working here in the early nineties, when you, when you pulled up to the house, what did you see? What did it look like? There were trees all over the place. It was really quite handsome in the trees, but it looked fairly good outside. It no was shutters. It was the inside that was. Well, the inside didn't look that terrible, except there was no wallpaper, no carpeting. Everything was white downstairs. Mm-hmm. Upstairs, the rooms had been papered, and they looked like looked far better on the second floor. Mm-hmm. That was the part of the house restored first. Interesting. And then the downstairs, and finally the uh, present day dining room. Which had been turned into a kitchen and bathroom and a third space, too. Okay, because that's what people (laughs) Uh always tend to ask us on our tours. No, when people were living there for so long, where did they go to the bathroom? Where did they they cook their food? It's true. And, and, and that's what I saw, you know, as a young college person in the dining room. And then um, the bedroom, John and Carrie's room that we interpret as that space, that wall and that bathroom had already been taken out when I was here um, in the early 80s. So that was gone, and it was just a bedroom. But I could see the patch in the floor, you know, where they had taken that wall out and taken the plumbing out. Um, and I'm not sure. I mean, we had to have had electricity because they had an alarm. But I don't remember turning lights on at all in the summer. But it's also, you know, we we're probably here from 9 to 3 mm-hmm. or something like that. So it was sunny mm-hmm. and bright. But I do not remember turning on lights. The porch had lights, though. Do you remember those awful, ugly, recessed lights on the back porch? Like ceiling lights you'd have in your bedroom in the 1960s and 70s. They were just heinous. And so they were all across the back porch. And I guess that was a safety measure more than anything else. When did they put things like the carpeting upstairs and the floor cloth in that you see in the dining room, the living room now? In the late 90s. 97-ish, because I was here when I came back. About then. Yeah. Yeah. With Gail Winkler, they has a big um, resurgence of um, redecorating. And so they hired a team from Philadelphia to come and, and talk to us about interpretation. And, and I was here then. Uh, that's when we put the lace curtains in and when we did the pink drapes. And so we were putting all those things down, buying the Brussels carpet, laying the floor cloth. Riley was making that. Well, sometime in the mid-90s, I believe the wallpaper was placed in the hallway, which was a major, major project. Some was found up on the third floor of the house. Only one small place in the house had wallpaper remaining from the 19th century at the top of the stairs, and there was enough to get a good copy. So they did the hall first, I think, and then did they do the back parlor maybe next? What we use is the family parlor? The office and dining room and then the parlors. And then the parlors. So something I've noticed and just, I mean, for Sarah and I, we're, we're coming up on our fourth year here. And when you first start, it feels like, well, the house has always looked exactly like it does mm-hmm. right now. But I feel like I've noticed in just the few years that we've been here, it's always changing. Mm-hmm. Like we're always adding on. We're always trying to restore. We're always trying to make things more historically accurate. You know, the house doesn't look the exact same now as it did four years ago. No. Has has it always been that way for the two of you? Has it always seemed like the house is in a constant state of of change? Yes. Yes. In my mm-hmm. earlier years, there were changes all the time. Mm-hmm. New furniture, new old furniture coming in. Yeah. 
I think bringing up the furniture is an excellent question, too. People always tend to ask us where the furniture come from. Why Uh did we choose which particular pieces we have inside the home? Are there any really interesting stories about how we've acquired some of these pieces? Sure. The um, earliest ones come from the family, of course, and I think that was a logical choice because that helps you to understand what it was the families had, you know, in the 19th century. There's no debate about whether they had this particular chair or not. When I came in 80, the early 80s, in the house was one chair that's now in the dining room, and it was painted gold, and there was the old story, do I dare say it, you that do. it was part yeah, of... Cut out. <laughs> The gold ballroom chairs. It was in the hall. There was a picture of Randall. There was a picture of John. Both in terrible, terrible states of repair. Not due to neglect, but funding, I guess, from families. And maybe where they had them located, often over mantles, so they get soot and all kinds of discoloration. And there was a sideboard. And that might have been it. So very sparse. Very sparse. Lath was... um, Visible all over the house, mostly in the upstairs middle room on the second floor where water had come through from the portico. The guest bedroom stored all of the balusters from the house. Beth just pointed into the corner. We're recording in the attic of Carnton, and (laughs) she just pointed (laughs) at the old balusters that are sitting on a a shelf in the corner of the room we're in right now. Duly cataloged. Right. Yes. And marked and located. Preserved and all (laughs) that stuff. Yes. But they were all stacked up in the guest bedroom. There was total disrepair up here in terms of stacks of lath and the attic had all been taken back to the knee walls and the rafters. So I never saw finished walls like this until I came back um, to work in the 90s uh, personally. But Do you remember the image of Carrie that we showed? An no, eight, tell an me. An 8 by 10 photograph of the portrait. Of no. the portrait that's downstairs right now? Yes. No, how, I didn't do that. How is that? We had it in a little frame in the parlor. Was that portrait not in very good condition when we first received it? Oh, it was in good shape. Came from descendants, and it was in pretty good shape. The portrait of John looked far worse. The one of Randall needed some repair, but the one of Carrie was Was pretty good. good. Mm -hmm. And the painting of the three children was in really good condition. And they've moved around the house, some of the pictures. You know, they've been in the dining room. They've been in the halls. They've been in the parlors. Uh, Carrie was in the dining room at one point. I remember seeing a picture of her over the sideboard at one point. I don't know if that was before you came or not, but no. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember that. I didn't see it that way. I just saw a picture of it that way. There was um, talk of putting her there. In the dining room. I don't know that they did. Yeah. I would like to ask you a couple questions just about the the eras of interpretation of just of of how you've been a guide over the years so looking back on the stories that we've told here can you think of anything like looking back now that you're thinking i can't believe we used to say that no i did tell the horse story though about somebody riding up the oh yeah but that supposedly is true say that yeah in brief tell that story enlighten our audience maybe james should tell that you should tell it because you know who it is you're going to have to hit the line okay i think a story that horses, one or more, taken up to the third floor to hide them from soldiers during the war. That who? That that John? Well, someone, someone here then did that, but there's nothing to it. 
There's no evidence. There's no evidence. And there's no horse footprints on the steps. You would think they would have made some indentation as they galloped up, right? I think the story started, perhaps, with a former tenant. Mm -hmm. Well, the story of what happened one day. Um, Supposedly, one day, he rode a horse into the hallway while his wife was having a party. Ah. Oh, so he might have had some, imbibed some intoxications, potentially? I don't know. Okay. Well, we won't won't assume that. (laughs) So there's multiple stories of horses being ridden ridden into the house. Well, at least a couple. Yeah. What about other myths or rumors that got passed down as facts over the years? The third floor ballroom. Yes. You mean the room that we're the rooms that we're in right now? Yes. yes. We're a ballroom. Well, we're a ballroom, but right. they were told to be ballroom. And yes. looking around right now, could you ever imagine this space as a ballroom? Uh, no, of course not. In Tennessee, in the summer, when you would have parties, when it would be 104, 110 degrees up here? No. Yeah, it was oppressive, yeah. horrible up here before air conditioning. Yeah. What about other myths or rumors that were passed around? That's that's the hardest one. Um, I guess one of them also associated with the with the ballroom because I always think there's always an element of truth and myths is the glass around the the room in here that there was like uh, glass walls. Mirrors. Yeah, made me yeah. think of Versailles kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so one of the relatives had started uh, or had a memory of a billy goat coming up to the attic. And butting their head into the mirrors of the ballroom, so I thought, well, okay, let's try really hard to make that true. What ha- what would have happened? Yes, doors were open because there was no air conditioning in here until the 1980s when we put in our whatever you call it geothermal unit. So doors were open, animals could get in. You smell skunks in the basement <laughs> from time to time now. So maybe a an animal climbed up here, and maybe there was a gold mirror up against the wall in an attic that you'd taken off the wall and didn't want to use anymore. And maybe he did break a mirror up here on the third floor. And then somehow that got turned into, oh, there must have been a ballroom up here. Why would there be a gold Mm. mirror in the attic? And so forth. But you have to go down this kind of path of assumptions in order to get to that point. Right. And make sense of someone's recollection. Just like ours. Ours aren't going to be exactly correct even 30 years ago. So how would that person who might have been in their 80s you know, be remembering something from when they were 10. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of, it's like the the soldiers, you know, the veterans start to kind of remember things a little bit differently too, as time goes on. The bloodstains. We, one of the most common questions I get is what happened to all these bloodstains? Were you folks here when the bloodstains disappeared? Well, what was here when I came was what was left, of course. They disappeared initially because they cleaned. And then whatever soaked into the floor was covered with carpet because that was the style of the day to cover the rooms with carpet as a sign of wealth. So I think they went out of people's minds, you know, in some ways that way. But way back when it was just an empty house and we did tours, it was a focus. You did point it out. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And downstairs, a former tenant told of sanding the floor downstairs to remove bloodstains. Did he say why he did that? I believe he said that his children yeah. stayed in one of the rooms and that they'd heard stories of what had happened here, and were frightened. It scared them. But sanding was not done upstairs. 
that family did not occupy the second floor rooms. And then somebody added, and I don't know if it's true, that he couldn't carry the belt sander to That's the second floor. That, that may be a myth. Yes. I don't know. You know how these things that go. Too. So yeah. So the second floor, to our understanding, was never was never sanded. Oh, speaking of the second floor, in the hall of the second floor, and then into the multi-purpose room at the portico, the small room. During Randall's lifetime, he had grained that area golden oak. Is that right? He had, and perhaps other spaces. And that was really neat when and I first so came. That, rem- that remains, but mm-hmm. now it's covered up. Thing. It's covered up, but it is it's still there. And then the door in Hattie's room had a little tiny panel that they had uncovered, and they put plexiglass over it. So at one point, it was just that panel that was um, showed, and then eventually they took the whole. Uh, white paint off so that we could see the mahogany inlay graining. That was neat to see that. And the wallpaper. Those And the blue up here. These are all original colors up here, probably since 1826. Oh, you're talking about the, oh. the blue that's on the doors and the mm-hmm. trim work up, upstairs mm-hmm. in the attic? So, mm-hmm. Just to clarify, are these the original colors or are these the actual original paint? The, both. The original. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. I yeah. didn't realize that. Yeah. And I love that. And I think that I always loved things like that. I was saying I thought it was so interesting when I first came, and there was nothing in the house virtually, that all you had to stare at was the wood of the house. And so you would start to pick out little things like latches, where latches would have been, doorknobs that were still here, like the one in the front parlor with the little, yes, whatever I'm trying to say, stamp on it. And it, there was just kind of a sweetness to it, an innocence to it, to think, ooh, last time somebody touched this. You know, it kind of put you back to the 19th century yeah. for me and my imagination, I guess, as a young person, too. My final question is, after having done this, after having been tour guides and help, help to preserve and tell the story for quite a while, what do you find still compelling or what makes this story worth retelling as often as you have? And it can, which, whichever one of you would like to go first can. James has told it the longest. The longest continues. You're going to have to edit this. Too. <laughs> I, I don't know. I really don't know. The battle was just one day and six hours, but it affected this family for the rest of their lives, and it affected our community for 100 years. Oh, it did? Literally. I mean, because we physically saw the remnants of the end of the Civil War in our lifetime because the South was so monetarily depleted at that time period that when I would drive from Nashville to Columbia to see my grandmother and come through Franklin, you know, you saw old fence lines, you saw old homes, um, trees coming out of cemeteries and so forth, because there was no money to care for it. And so you had this weird, why is it like that? You know, why do things look like that? What happened here before? We had the the physical scars of the war just at the very beginning of our lives. And so now that's gone. You can't really see it because people have come in and, and fixed things up or torn them down. So it's strange when I put it in context that way to think about that I saw the end of it or that our grandparents, you know, had people that they could tell us about. Um, who were either in the war or lived through Reconstruction, like my grandmother's family. I think that's what makes it easy to get up and come to work some days when um, you might not want to. (laughs) At this point, when you're thinking about, all right, I'm thinking about retirement in the next four or five years, is that we're always finding something new, and there's always something new and exciting to learn. There's an artifact that's out there, a letter that's out there. There's a story that connects to Carnton. There's an object that 
I desperately want a family member to give. And the people, I really love the tourists that come and want to hear the story and, and why this this matters. The biggest change for me over the years, of course, has been the introduction of, of the issue of slavery. And I love Lincoln. I wish I could quote Lincoln as much as everybody can, but I'm not a great memorizer. But he said something to the effect of, you know, if slavery isn't evil, uh, nothing is. Even in the 90s, that really wasn't discussed, but it has been through the last 10 years, 12 years, really with our boss, Eric, and the community and all of us searching together and trying to resolve that issue as a nation that is fascinating to me to go back and study more of those documents and more of that time period in which these people, the Carters and the McGavicks, lived, and that makes it exciting for me. It's wonderful to tell about the challenge the McGavicks met when soldiers showed up at their door. They were completely unprepared for the tragedy of the battle and how they overcame the obstacles over the years. So that was supposed to be the last episode of the Carnton series, but pretty much the second we stopped recording, James said, you know, there really is a lot more we could talk about. Which was a little bit interesting because it did take us a while to convince James to get on the podcast. But once we got him on microphone, it seemed like he just had more and more to say. So next week, we will have a bonus episode with round two of our conversation with James and Beth. So if you like this one, I think you'll like that one too. And tickets are on sale now for our summer concert series here at Carnton. June 30th is our Johnny Cash Now, the Johnny Cash Tribute Band. And July 28th is Resurrection, a Journey Tribute Band. For more information, visit boft.org slash events. And there's still time to sign up for our summer history camp, which is June 18th through 20th and July 16th through 18th. So if you have a child who's 8 to 12, mm-hmm. head to boft.org slash summer camp to learn more about that. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. <laughs>